You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. And he says, yes, the real Uluru statement. So he pulls it out of this giant cylinder and lays it on my lounge room floor. And everyone stands up and the most extraordinary thing happened. We felt its heart beating and understood intuitively as Aboriginal people as we looked at that document that our ancestors were in the room with us while we looked at that. This podcast features highlights from Finding the Heart of the Nation, Thomas Mayo, in conversation with Catherine Little, presented in partnership with Castlemaine State Festival. Um, welcome. Welcome to everybody on our Saturday afternoon dialogue session. We're into day four of dialogues and it's been a lovely week so far. I'm thrilled to be introducing you this, this afternoon to two very important speakers on uh, the voice and the treaty here this afternoon and for what will be a very topical and a very important conversation. I'd like to introduce Leah, our Auslan interpreter today, and I would also like to and thank her for being here. Thank you, Leah. And also to acknowledge that today's session is, is being presented in partnership with the Wheeler Centre and we're very grateful to the Wheeler Centre for helping us make this session happen. So th big thank you to our partners at the Wheeler Centre. Let me introduce our guests. Um, Thomas Mayer is a Coreg Aboriginal and Kalgal Urbanle Torres Strait Islander man. He's a union official with the MUA and an advocate in the campaign for a constitutionally enshrined voice. He is the chairperson of the Northern Territory Indigenous Labor Network, advises the Diversity Council of Australia and from the Heart Campaign, and is an executive member of the Northern Territory Trades and Labor Council. Thomas is the author of four beautiful books, two of which are on stage here at the moment, um, and has articles and essays published in The Guardian, Griffith Review and Sydney Morning Herald. Thomas will be in conversation with Catherine Little. Catherine is, is an Arantxa Laritja woman from Central Australia and is a leading advocate in upholding the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, influencing and driving positive change. As CEO of SNAKE, the National Voice for Our Children, she works to strengthen, represent and amplify the voices of Indigenous children and families. It's my hope today that they'll consider what a voice to Parliament would mean, not just for all of us, but in particular for the future of First Nations children. Would you please welcome Catherine Little and Thomas Mayo. Oh, um, thank you. I, I think, Thomas, you'd agree often the hardest thing uh, about sitting in front of an audience is having to listen to your biography. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I was thinking I need to update mine, actually. <laughs> I think it all the time as well. And I think the other thing um, I think about as I was listening to your biography is it's hard to believe that there was a time when um, people didn't know who Thomas Mayer was. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> and it still wasn't that long ago. Um, and, uh, you know, as I was driving along, I was, I was thinking about Thomas and, and how I've bumped into Thomas, usually at airports, right? We, we see each other at airports mm. all the time, which I think tells you something pretty significant about um, how little time we get with our families, yeah. but um, why we, we make those sacrifices that we do in order to be able to go out there and, and influence change and to enable voices to um, shape um, the way policy is developed and the way programs are delivered and ultimately um, the impact that it'll have on our mob and, and their ability to make decisions about their own lives. But I was thinking as I was driving along, as I was looking at all that beautiful country that these Jajarong mob have about how lucky I was to be invited 
to this place and I was thinking about their ancestors and that's a pretty normal thing you'd say you do a lot of that as you're driving along yeah absolutely I mean you can't uh, you can't miss I think when you look at these special places you know and your breath catches at the beauty mm. and abundance you just can't miss how uh, what a wonderful life our people would have had mm. you know before colonization and yeah. Um, you know, yeah, you just can't deny it when you see yeah. this beautiful country. Yeah, absolutely. And I look at how dense the foliage was, and I think, I wonder, I wonder how these mob tracked. I wonder how they found their food because where I'm from, Central Australia, um, you know, there's lots of beautiful sand. And and to start this off, that's where I'd like to take you. So I don't know how many of you have ever been to Alice Springs, but it is the land of the Embundarinya. So Mbundurinya is, is my grandfather's mob. Uh, Mbundurinya means belonging to Alice Springs. And what's really significant about the Mbundurinya is they are the central mob of the Aranda. I like that word, Aranda. Um, and Aranda is really important um, because that language, like all of our languages, matches the land and the country to which it belongs. So as you enter Alice Springs, you'll notice things change, right? The sounds change to match with that aranda word. Um, the ground is a little bit coarser and it crunches while you're walking. It's still a beautiful red, but there's also a lot of iron ore that makes that crunch. Um, the landscape changes, you know, as you're coming in from the desert oak country and all those beautiful sand hills, all of a sudden it becomes ranges. And those ranges represent our caterpillars, our warriors, those caterpillars that fell fighting for that country and, and stand as an omen and a message to anyone entering our country that we will die for this country, we will fight for this country. But in front of those hills is also more gentle hills and those ones, they represent our women. And that story talks about how our families have understood for years and years that no one will fight harder for you than your family and that if you lose connection with your family, you will cry for the rest of your life and that story ends as you go through Alice Springs with the trees and the people that cry for their families because those families have been lost because they didn't understand risk. Um, and that's where I first met Thomas a long time ago mm. in Alice Springs where those gum trees are golden as the sun rises and the ranges glow orange and as it gets turns to daylight, those trees turn to silver and the sky turns to blue. Anyway... In Alice Springs, I get this phone call out of the blue, never heard of this person. It says, oh, hello, is that Catherine? I said, yes. <laughs> says, my name's Thomas Mayo. I said, oh, yeah. He said, I'm one of the Mayos. Have you heard the Mayos? I said, yeah, I have. Um, he goes, I'm one of them. I said, oh, yeah. He said, but uh, we don't spell my name the same way. It's spelled Mayo or Mayo. He said, everyone gets it wrong, but that's because the missionaries couldn't spell our name and they got it wrong. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. What's up, Thomas Mayer? And he said, he said, I want to talk to you about this uh, statement from the heart, the Uluru statement. I went, oh, yeah. He said, I'm wondering if I can show it to you and maybe some of your family. And uh, and again, I'm not taking much notice of this Uluru statement from the heart. I've got other things to do. We're in the middle of repatriating um, ceremony to from sent from further south back into Alice Springs because the singers are gone. So my 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 focus is really on maintaining culture. Um, and I go, oh yeah, because that's our way. If someone reaches out and says, "Can we have a chat to you?" We do it. So oh no, yeah, no worries. Uh, how are we going to do that? And he says, oh, well, maybe we'll come around. I'll come around and show you this statement. 
I said, oh, no worries. So I start ringing up my aunties. And again, we're TOs. So we're ringing up the most, you know, the most significant leaders in that part of the country. And I say to them, I got this phone call from this bloke called Thomas Mayer. And they say, oh, Mayer, where's he from? I said, oh, he's from Darwin. Oh, what breed is he? I said, oh, I think he might be from the Torres Strait. But he reckons he's a mayor. Like, oh, like these mayors from here? I said, yeah, yeah, same mob. But apparently the missionaries spelt the name wrong. And they went, ah, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I said, but if you mob come around, I'll make you scones. Ah, oh, okay, no worries. What sort of scones? <laughs> <laughs> I said, not, not, are you going to make sultana scones? I said, no. Oh, that's good. I don't like sultana scones. <laughs> oh, that's all good. What about pumpkin scones? I said, nah. Oh, that's good. I don't like pumpkin scones. <laughs> so I ring up the next nana. Hey, I'm going to make scones. You want to come around and look at this Uluru statement? Oh, what Uluru statement? I said, you know, that statement, the one they signed at Uluru. And they said, oh, well, how are we going to do that? I said, I don't know. I think we're going to look at a computer. Oh, or maybe he printed it out. I don't know. But you want these scones or not? <laughs> I said, oh, you got jam? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, I got jam. I got jam. Oh, you got apricot jam? I said, no. I said, oh, that's good. We don't like apricot jam. <laughs> Anyhow, next nano, and it goes on and on. Next nano, you're going to come? Yeah, yeah. You got cream for those scones? <laughs> I said, yeah, I got cream for those scones. Oh, like. That one from the jar, or are you going to make it? I said, I'm going to make it. Ah, oh, okay, cool. Well, we'll turn up. So <laughs> so they all turn up, and in they come, and they're all sitting around, and they're like, so what about this bloke? Who is he, Catherine? I said, Thomas Mayer. Ah, who's his mob? I said, remember I said, I think he's from Torres Strait. Ah, well, who's his family, these Mayers? Same Mayers from here? I said, yeah, yeah, same Mayers from here. Next Nana comes in, asks the same question. <laughs> same question. Ah, oh, all right. And what are we doing here again? I said, we're going to look at this statement. Ah, oh, how are we going to do that? I said, I don't know. On the computer? <laughs> anyway, it goes on and on and, and I'm in the kitchen and the old aunties, they're all sitting around the kitchen bench and, and uh, in the middle of the table and I'm making these scones and the question goes on and on as they discuss who this bloke, who this bloke might be and, and what he's doing in Alice Springs. Anyhow, uh, I'm making the scones and I'm putting the jam on first because we don't do it like they do in the real Devonshire teas. We do jam first and that nanas were very clear on that. And uh, we hear this knock on the door and everyone goes quiet. And this is really significant because, as I've articulated a little bit earlier, if you picked up the seed, we are a family that still engages very closely with ceremony. So we understand when your ancestors are in the room, we understand what presence is. And something happened. We hear this knock on the door and everyone went quiet. And we went, oh. What's happening? I don't know. I think that bloke's at the door. Ah, oh, okay. So we look down the door and down my whole corridor, it's a long corridor and there's the screen and in the screen door, there's Thomas Mayer who cuts a very fine figure of a young tall man and next to him is this giant cardboard cylinder and I can't see Thomas, just this incredible silhouette of this tall, strong man with this giant cylinder and I look at the nanas and the aunties and I say, hey, 
I think he might have that statement. And they start whispering, what, that statement? I said, yeah, that statement. So in comes Thomas Mayer. And again, everyone's a bit unsure about what's happening at this moment in time because we can feel something. We don't understand what it is, but we can feel it. But as is our way, the nanas and the aunties, they say to him, oh, hello, what's your name? (laughs) (laughs) And what do you say, Thomas? I can't remember. You've got a good memory. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I'm Thomas Mayo, but um, I'm a Mayo, I'm a Mayo. But the missionaries couldn't spell that name right. <laughs> and the nanas and the granny said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Anyhow, they said, so what are you here for? And he says, well, I'm here to show you that statement. And everyone's still not 100% sure about this. He goes, how about I pull it out and I show it to you? And everyone's like, what, the Uluru statement? And he goes, yes, the Uluru statement, the real Uluru statement. And he says, yes, the real Uluru statement. So he pulls it out of this giant cylinder and lays it on my lounge room floor. And everyone stands up and the most extraordinary thing happened. We felt its heart beating. We felt the ancestors and we read the words and we looked at the names of those 250 people, every single one of them a leader from their community, every single one of them an expert in their fields and understood intuitively as Aboriginal people as we looked at that document that our ancestors were in the room with us while we looked at that. Again, if you didn't live through the intervention, you wouldn't understand if you, um, you know, pay your rates and those sorts of things. You actually have the ability to um, decide which plumbers can come out to your house. Those communities lost the ability to choose even who the tradesmen were that came out and built um, their houses or serviced their plumbing. Those decisions actually were made in Canberra. This is like extraordinary disempowerment. Councils demolished. Um, Women and men no longer with the ability to make any decisions about what was happening in their homelands or what they needed. Mm. So an extraordinary um, impact of policy. But I noticed, Thomas, when you were talking about the extraordinary role Rachel Perkins has played in bringing our stories to life, and some of them really hard, right? We acknowledge that listening to stories like this is really hard. Um, you then decided to write a book. <laughs> you decided to write a book. What? Why? Why? Why the book? Yeah, I'd been travelling on the road for around twelve months with the Uluru Statement Canvas, and uh, I, um, I was driving somewhere rural New South Wales, and I I thought about all these people that I'd met. You know, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Uh, people in the different communities that I'd travelled to, and the way that they were able to relate why they supported the Uluru Statement and the call for a voice. Uh, And I had lots of photos, you know, these beautiful photos of people posing with the Uluru Statement. And I thought this would be a really, this would be another way to help the campaign and help share this with people so that they could support it. Uh, And Marcia Langton had just written Welcome to Country. And so I gave her a call and I said, Marcia, what do you think about this idea? She introduced me to Hardy Grant and away I went. Um, I wrote it in about six months as I was traveling around, just got stuck into it. It's uh, 260 something pages. 
but I, I think I did it easily um, because of the generosity of the people that uh, I interviewed in it. I'd never done an interview before, so I had to practice listening, you know, because you sort of tend to want to equalize with someone when you have a conversation or share your own experience. And, and I had to stop and listen. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it was a really, um, it's a really great experience writing it and it gave me the bug to write, obviously, because I've written lots. Yeah, yeah. And again, we're talking about children. So um, you also moved from that, didn't you, and, and, and started looking at how you might write this story for children. What was your experience there? Yeah, well, I noticed how children, my own children, I've got five kids uh, over the years, I've noticed how they love to, you know, they, they'd come home and say, oh, I learnt this about the Larrakia language or the, you know, the Larrakia seasons. Um, and also traveling around with the Uluru Statement and, and going to some schools, I learned that, you know, children in general are just so proud of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. It's like they have uh, an, an innate understanding that what makes us truly unique as Australians is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and over 60,000 years of, of continuous heritage. Uh, that we should all be proud of and, and kids just feel that I think and so I thought a really great way also to help this campaign is to do a children's book uh, and in the conclusion of the first book I write about how my son when I was writing it I was home for Christmas and getting stuck into it and he was six years old and he says to me dad what are you going to call the book you know and I say what would you call it? And then he does a whole series of arm farts, you know, as kids do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I say to him, you know, we can't call it that. <laughs> I said, um, but uh, I'm going to call the book Finding the Heart of the Nation. And he says to me, where is the heart of the nation? And so I pulled him close and I put my hand on his heart and I say the heart of the nation is here. And I write about it in the, in the conclusion, so it sort of helped me shape the children's book around that experience. Uh, and it's just been so, it's just been such a great help, I think, to this campaign because the children, you know, the adults in their life reading this book to their children, they're learning about the Uluru Statement, they're learning some truth of our history. Mm -hmm. um, they're such great little campaigners, kids. Yeah. I want to pick you up on that a bit. So, um, you know, last year, Snake, uh, which is, you know, who I work for, says so Snake, the national voice for our children, 42 years old. We are one of the oldest Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peak bodies in the country. So what we know is that for more than 40 years, we've been fighting for voice. That's why we have that name. This is not a new fight for, for Snake. Um, and we have our national Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Children's Day. And that day was an acknowledgement from um, our communities right across the country in 1988 as people marched in protest to the bicentenary and they said listen of all the people that suffer the most because of the way policy has been developed and applied in this country it is our children and our children still don't have much to be proud of they're told not to be proud of who they are um which is quite remarkable considering it's 60,000 years it actually makes us the most resilient culture in the world and yet it's rarely ever repeated and our children rarely ever get the chance to see themselves standing strong. So for us, it was a real no-brainer um, last year to have um, Thomas very kindly step into the role as ambassador for National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Day. And one of the things that I remember um, really clearly about your role is, uh, 
as the ambassadors when we walked into an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Children's Multifunctional Centre. So if you've never seen one of those, they're extraordinary and they were built out of grandmother's law. So that is the understanding that if you want a strong and healthy community, you have to nurture your children and your families first. So these centres do everything. They're a place for everyone to come to. And Thomas walks in and he was like a superstar in a childcare centre. <laughs> what did the what did children say to you when you walk into those environments? What are they saying about voice? How do they articulate what voice means? Oh, I love that question. So when sometimes when I've read the children's book in schools, we've invited the children to respond to the book and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And they just come up with the most profound things about fairness, right? You know, we're always telling our kids that, you know, you've got to be fair, you've got to share. Um, and and they respond in letters or, or you know, artwork. And I'll just give you one example that, that always sticks in my mind is uh, one of the, one child, it was year fours in Canberra. And, and the child basically writes in this letter, Dear Prime Minister, um, I believe that we should have, you know, give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a voice uh, because I think it's just fair. When I'm playing, when we're going to play a game in the schoolyard with other kids, we always need to make sure that everybody agrees what the rules will be. And that's, you know, that's why I think we should say yes. You know, just really profound things like that. I just get it. Yeah. I also like those ones that are just a bit different too. I know when we were asking the question as part of our making of the ad for that particular day, one of the little guys we asked at that centre, what do you think about voice? And he said, I think I might like to get a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> but that's self-determination, yeah. right? That is self-determination. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, you, you've not only, I mean, drawing on the concept of heart and the concept of, of caring, you, you know, you haven't stopped at just talking about the voice. You've also really spent some time examining what it means to care and nurture. And that mm. led you to another book, didn't it? Do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, this one, Dear Son. Actually, I'll read this aphorism that goes back to the thing about children there that I wrote. Learn from your children. A child is curious about difference, not prejudiced, eager to learn rather than ignore. We can learn from the innocence of our children. Uh, yeah, so I wrote Dear Son uh, because, uh, well, I met Tara June Winch, you know, she's a award-winning author, The Yield, won the Miles Franklin. And we were talking, you know, we we're having a yarn about families and who our mob are and all that sort of stuff that you do. And and she suggested to me I should write about fatherhood. Um, I've got five kids, I suppose, so I qualify. Uh, but um, I, I, I said straight away, I said, oh, I don't think so, you know. I've made all sorts of mistakes as a father and a partner. Uh, and... I don't think um, I'm the right person, but I thought about it a lot over the coming months, and and uh, and I read a book called um, "The Fire Next Time" by James Baldwin, uh, the African American writer, and one of the one of the essays in that was a letter to his nephew, and it just struck me that this is a really this is will be a, this will be a great way to talk about fatherhood, and. So I set about writing Dear Son, and I, the way I did it was I drafted first a letter to my eldest son, which is the first part of the book. It's bookended with a letter to my son and a letter to my father. And um, 
And in writing that, one of the bits of advice that I gave my son was that he should keep an open mind and consider other people's perspectives. And, and then it struck me that I need to invite other men. You know, it's not just a short book, this. I need to invite other men to uh, to do the same and, and offer their perspectives. And so that's why I invited Stan Grant, Troy Casadaly, um, Catherine's cousin. Uncle. Uncle, uncle. Yep. Uncle uh, Johnny Little. And Johnny talks about the intervention and the impact, just just the way it felt at the time as a man, you know, when you had a prime minister basically announced to the entire country that these social issues uh, that were in our communities that were a result of colonisation and genocide and the failed policies basically announced to the whole country that these were an Aboriginal problem and suspended the Racial Discrimination Act to do what he did. And just the way that suspicious eyes, you know, he, he, he talks about seeing, you know, a young Aboriginal man with his child and, and people just looking at him as if, you know, that that child needed protection from him because he was Aboriginal. Mm. And, and so the, the book is really is described uh, in, the, in the introduction as an act of defiance, you know, that we are celebrating Indigenous men and expressing our love uh, for our children. Yeah, and it, the the story, one of the stories that is in that book that my uncle tells, um, in our family we call it the bastard had blue eyes, and uh, you know this, I, I can't remember how Uncle John articulates that, but I my, my grandfather Arthur, he and all his siblings were removed from their mother, and it's something that we grew up with, right? We've always known about the stolen generation because our grandfather would talk about it, but he wouldn't use those words. He'd say, when I was in the bungalow. Um, and he was the most, one of the most extraordinary men you'd ever meet. You know, that person that walks down the street and everybody stops and asks, what's the time, old man? And he'd tell them, didn't matter where we were, people would ask my grandfather what the time was. Um, just an extraordinary human being. But these stories that he'd tell about being at the bungalow and looking after his siblings and looking after his cousins and how he would cry every night, every night while he was in the bungalow, cried for his mother. And as he was dying, you know, we, we had to, we moved him down to the Royal Adelaide and, you know, years and years around bushfires and campfires and, and stockmen, you know, he had uh, throat cancer and his stomach cancer. So everything was removed and he, for the first time, showed us vulnerability and we hadn't seen it before. And, you know, he's laying in the bed and he just sits up and he looks at us and he says, you know what, that bastard had blue eyes. We said, what bastard? He said, that man, that bastard that took me from my mother, that bastard. He said, I was only a little boy. He said, my mum was making tea and there was a knock at the door and she turned around and she dropped that tea and she burst into tears and she said, please don't. He said, that bastard took me. That bastard took me from my mother. And then he sat up and the pain was extraordinary and he said, how could anybody ever be so cruel to take a child away from its mother for no reason? That bastard had blue eyes. And that's why we tell these stories and it's why we fight mm. for things like voice. That's right. When you hear those stories, Thomas, how do you how do you take on all that pain? Because this isn't the only one you're hearing. How do you deal with that? Mm, I've never really thought about that, Catherine. I I think I I just do what I know is important. 
I think it's a drive to create a better future for our children and, you know, a better country. And, uh, and so that's the reason why I do it. Mm. That's the reason why I can continue to do it, I think. Mm. Arguments that some mob that say no for um, is that we're going to cede or lose our sovereignty over this, that it's some sort of trick. Um, we're not going to wake up the morning after a referendum and no longer be Kararig, Kapagal, Arabamle or Aranda. You know, this, and, and the legal experts have also said this is, has nothing to do with sovereignty. It's about establishing a representative body. And the only way that you can cede your sovereignty is through a treaty, if the people of that nation ceded that sovereignty. Um, so you don't need to be concerned about that as well. But I'll say finally to that, mm. be respectful. There's some people, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, that you'll never be able to convince. Just accept that they have that position and move on and find people that you might be able to move. Okay? Don't waste your time with people that are entrenched against it. I was thinking, Thomas, about that, you know, you know, nothing will ever take away the fact that I am an Aranda. I am so vastly proud of that. But my nana, she was a Pradama, Pradama Mangadara. Um, uh, so her country picks up at uh, Rainbow Valley and extends past Uluru and uh, Karajuta. And uh, my nana couldn't read or write. And my nana never took any notice of other laws. They were absolutely, in in her world, absolutely irrelevant. You know, she can she could still remember walking around nakedy. And I remember we were hunting once upon a time and there's this big sign and it says, you know, this is a national park. There will be prosecution for trespassing uh, and that includes killing animals. And we're, Ivan and I are on the back of this ute as we're driving into that park and we're banging on the back of the thing, nana, nana, nana. We can't go in here. We can't hunt anymore because it says this belongs to the Commonwealth government. And she turned around. She stopped. She said, "We are itcha. This is my country. Only my country. Mm. It will not take our country off us." Mm. Um, who is funding the Yes campaign? And can we donate, please? Yes. Uh, again, on Yes Twenty Three website, um, there's a way to contribute. Uh, Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition has been established and it has DGR status. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the campaign body, uh, the only one that will get DGR status to run the Yes campaign. What are the differences and views across the states and territories and where are the greatest challenges? Yeah, Queensland and WA are the ones that are lagging behind a bit. Uh, the polling showed that all states were above 50% support. Um, overall, it's it's been consistent at around 60%, took a bit of a dip recently to, I think it was 54%. That shouldn't make us comfortable. You know, we need to get it up much higher. Um, a lot of that support is soft, so confusion can be very effective against those soft voters. Um, but uh, Queensland dipped down to 49% recently. And so for those that don't know, you need um, not just a majority of Australians to vote yes, you need a majority of people in a majority of states as well, a double majority. 
Um, so that's that's the challenge that we have. And, and can you track what what has caused that dip, Thomas? Is there a, um, a media a story or something that has caused that dip? Yeah, the the no case have had a pretty good run lately in the media, uh, and um, the campaign itself hasn't really lifted up. You know, lifted off the the yes campaign, uh, and so we're seeing the the result of that. I, I think we with the um, with a more visual campaign. Um, now that we have those words, we can do much better, and I think we can turn it around. Last question. How do you counter argument this change will result in multiple court challenges? Uh, that's um, high court, um, former high court justices, um, eminent uh, constitutional experts, uh, a great majority of them are saying that that is a very low risk. Um, you cannot say that it will never go to high to the high court, you know, because that's our our system works on the on the rule of law. Uh, people can take things to court, but they might not be successful, and that's what we mean when we say low risk. Um, those uh, the words in the constitution have been worked on for a very long time. The words that are proposed to go into the constitution. Um, eminent, as I said, eminent constitutional experts say that it's safe, it's a low risk, uh, and um, and so it's a fear-mongering tactic for people to continue to say that. Uh, the That last clause, especially, where it says that the parliament can decide all matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including the composition, powers, functions, and procedures, really reinforces and it was something that was the last things that we were negotiating that's why it was such a special moment last thursday i think it was when we announced these words because it was it was a difficult negotiation to find the balance not because the government were trying to i've got to say it was a it was a great process the government never tried to force us into anything or, or to leverage it wasn't that sort of negotiation and i've been in plenty of those negotiations as a union official um, but um, it wasn't like that. We were trying to find common ground and there was a political question. There was, there was a political issue that we had to consider on the difference from the words that were first proposed at Gama as draft words that the Prime Minister wanted the Australian people to engage with and, and to debate to the ones that we've landed on. And that, that last part, the, the third clause in that part, just reinforces the 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 supremacy of the parliament you know the, the the continuing supremacy of the parliament to decide how the voice will function and all those things because and we were able to agree with that as indigenous leaders because this has never been about a legal right to veto it's never been about a third chamber it's never been about holding up government processes unnecessarily it has always been about simply having a guarantee that we can speak to our interests and priorities in those communities in a proper way, where it's not someone like me or Warren Mundine or you know someone that a politician, a political party chooses, like Jacinta Price, that is saying that they speak for us, but we actually have an opportunity to choose our own representatives, to hold them to account, to see what they're saying on our behalf in a transparent way. And then it doesn't matter about a legal right to veto because you've got, you've got the strength of coherency and transparency and accountability of leaders 
uh, that we can get rid of if they're not doing, you know, doing their best for their own communities. And that's a powerful thing. That's all it is. It's a modest proposal. I think that that is probably a very good place to finish. And I would like you to please give our guests a very big thank you. You've been listening to Catherine Little in conversation with Thomas Mayo. This event was recorded at Castlemaine Goodshed on Saturday the 1st of April 2023, presented in partnership with Castlemaine State Festival. The bookseller for this event was Northern Books. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.